You are listening to Mining Stock Education, where you'll learn from the top leaders in the natural resource sector and uncover quality mining investment opportunities. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Bill Powers, and you're listening to Mining Stock Education again. And in this episode, we're going to be speaking with battery metals expert and president of House Mountain Partners, Chris Berry. He's a returning guest. I've been speaking with Chris for uh, several years on this podcast. I always appreciate his insights. So, Chris, thanks for coming on the show again. And to kick it off, could I get your thoughts on this whole idea of carbon streaming royalties? There was a recent IPO, and I've been looking more into this model. Any thoughts you can share with us? Yeah, and and thanks for having me on, Bill. It's uh, great to great to actually see you face to face as opposed to just doing our typical, um, you know, phone phone recorded podcast. But anyway, look, I, I think the the carbon streaming model it, it's new in many ways. Um, so I think there's a lot that the market and investors are probably going to learn from it, how it's perceived and how it behaves in different market environments. Um, you know, I will confess to not having done as much work on it or due diligence um, as as I would have liked to at this point in time, just because quite simply, there's so much going on in other parts of the battery supply chain that I'm more focused on. But um, from the standpoint of, I think, financial innovation and trying to figure out ways to uh, either transfer risk or maybe better manage risk along the battery supply chain. I think it's a really, really interesting first step. And so I'm I'm very interested to see how it sort of evolves and, and what comes of it. But I think it's really a risk uh, risk mitigating mechanism at this point in time. So it's it's very encouraging. It, I, as I look at the model, just as an elementary glancing at it, it, see, it assumes that there's going to be carbon tax, perhaps a global carbon tax. But there's political forces that don't want that to occur, too. So that seems to me one of the big things that could, you know, put put a roadblock in front of this model, because in gold royalty streaming companies, you know that there's going to be demand for gold. But if governments aren't demanding carbon tax credits, what type of product is this company or this model actually going to be selling? Yeah, I think what you're sort of hitting the nail on the head here. And when I think about the whole electrification and decarbonization thesis, I see a real paradox. And it's kind of a a theme that I've been running with now for the last few months. And it's this idea of the paradox of green growth in the sense that if we are serious, either on a country or regional or a global basis about decarbonizing any sector of the economy, whether or not it's automotive or um, industrial, whatever it may be, you know, the reality is it's not going to take less or fewer raw materials. It's going to take a lot more. And we can get into some of the details, I'm sure, based on, again, to your point, assumptions um, about how this all unfolds. But, you know, this is why I think maybe the carbon streaming or carbon management aspect of of the whole decarbonization thesis is really, really important because, again, it's going to take orders of magnitude, more lithium, more cobalt, more raw materials to bring uh, global temperatures in line, which I think is the kind of the long-term goal of the Paris Climate Agreement, for example. So, you know, it's weird. It's sort of a situation, I think, where at the end of the day, if we do successfully decarbonize years out, you know, no one's going to be happy, quite frankly. I think that you could see costs increase for raw material producers because of ESG or other mandates, which again, it's not a bad thing. It, it is what it is. And responsible production, I think is the name of the game. But 
I think that it's going to take more raw material production. And I think that the costs of producing some of those raw materials are going to increase. So decarbonization really probably means that it's going to take a communal public and private sector effort. And there's going to be a lot of give and take. And that's something that I don't know if if we're really ready to deal with yet at this point in time. So what would be the energy source that's going to fuel the extraction of all these raw, raw materials? Because currently it's oil, diesel. You do get some hydro power in certain areas, but is it nuclear that's going to be the cleanest, uh, best source of energy that's ultimately going to create electricity to fuel this raw extraction? Yeah, I, I'd like to think it was nuclear, but um, given just the the PR problem, quite frankly, that the nuclear power business has, um, which I think in many ways is unfounded and overblown. Um, I would be surprised if you saw nuclear comprise a larger percentage of the overall energy mix, say in 2030, 2040, 2050, than it does today. And of course, energy demand is going to increase if you look at demographics and things like that out over the next 20 or 30 years. But I would probably guess that nuclear in particular is probably going to remain the same I don't know if it's 10 or 20% of the overall global energy mix um, out in 2050 relative to what it is today. So, you know, it's going to be a mixture. It's going to be hydro. Um, You know, I think we'll have to leverage as much of that as we possibly can. And there are limits there. Of course, wind and solar is, is really the renewable push at this point in time. There are limits there as well. So you're, you're going to see an energy mix out to 2030, 2040, 2050. It's not, I don't think, going to be a situation where solar or offshore wind or nuclear, for example, overtakes everything. It just simply can't do that for, for various different reasons. Um, hydrocarbons are going to be with us for decades. Um, if anybody you know, doesn't believe that or, or wishes it were otherwise, I'm, I'm just very sorry. I can't see any way um, that we can really decarbonize and get off fossil fuels across the global economy anytime, you know, in the next, gosh, 20 to 30 to 40 years. Um, and that's a pretty pessimistic scenario. I'm, I am encouraged by the amount of innovation in R&D that I see going into clean energy technologies, but I think it's just going to take a long time to reconfigure supply chains and, and how the global economy operates. So a little bit of a mouthful. I think that you're likely to see a mix of energy sources aid in decarbonization. Of course, you are going to see solar and wind and batteries grow in terms of their market penetration a lot faster than coal or other hydrocarbons. But nevertheless, it's going to be a mix. FPX Nickel is developing the large-scale Dakar Nickel District in central British Columbia. Within the district is FPX Nickel's PEA stage Baptiste Nickel Deposit, which is projected to be among the world's top 10 largest nickel mines by annual output. The Baptiste Deposit has the potential for the lowest quartile operating costs at just $2.74 per pound. And compared to recent global nickel mines, the project requires a low capex. FPX is also commencing its first-ever drill program at its van target in the Dakar Nickel District. Surface samples have indicated that the van target footprint is larger in scale and 10 to 15% higher in grade than Baptiste. FPX Nickel trades in Canada as FPX and on the OTC under FPOCF. To learn more, go to fpxnickel.com. That's fpxnickel.com. When investors are looking for good investment opportunities with the EV revolution and all these ideas we're talking about, would battery recycling be one of the key places they should look? I think so. And, you know, I'm, I'm biased. I've worked with the battery recycler 
for the last few years now. Um, it's actually about to go public. It's a company called Lifecycle. And um, I was on their advisory board for a long time. So I know a lot about the recycling business. My view is that you're not likely to see um, what I would call secondary sourced material. So recycled material, whether or not it's lithium or cobalt or nickel or copper, you're not likely to really see that penetrate the markets before 2030 or 2035. So the fact that you know the industry, the automotive industry is really focused on recycling today is important. And you know you need to be making the investments today in order to harvest the gains throughout the course of this decade and beyond. So look, it's very positive. I think when you talk about, well, what is, what is the source of recycled material between now and 2030, it's going to be battery scrap. Okay. You have a situation where today the lithium ion battery business is 275, maybe 300 gigawatt hours in size, obviously growing dramatically. You know, when, when you look at, I think the number of gigafactories that are either under construction or under some sort of expansion or planned by 2030, it's well over 200. And that would put us at roughly four terawatt hours of battery capacity. So you're likely to see a lot of battery scrap hit the market between now and 2030. But I wouldn't think that you'd see actual spent EV batteries and mass be recycled before 2030 to 2035. So, you know, this really brings us back to this idea that to really build out the EV infrastructure from a security of supply perspective, it's going to take primary mined raw material. So either expanding capacity from uh, nickel mines or copper mines or lithium mines or bringing new capacity on stream. And you and I both know, we've talked about this in past podcasts that, you know, just take a new lithium mine, for example, it's a seven to 10 year proposition. And, you know, we used to sort of shy away, I think at the CapEx of 500 to 750 million to maybe a billion dollars but fortunately, there's so much money sloshing around in the global economy right now looking for a home. I would actually think finding the CapEx for a new lithium mine wouldn't be an issue. It's just the permitting and it's just working out the kinks to actually produce tens of thousands of tons of battery grade material. So that's really the issue right now. It's going to take a lot more primary mined material to hit these decarbonization goals. Chris, with the recycling battery scrap, uh, with that model, is one of the what dangers are involved? Because, you know, we see all the labels when we go on an airplane, you know, don't your lithium batteries be careful. What are the key dangers with that? Well, you know, lithium ion batteries are, how should I describe them in the, you know, most realistic, but, but stark terms possible. I mean, I, they're very, very dangerous. Okay. Um, uh, pieces of equipment. And so the fact that there aren't more battery fires, I think, is testament to the fact that lithium ion batteries have been commercialized uh, for about at least the last 30 years. And so we're aware of how they perform different chemistries in different environments. Um, but, you know, again, when you're talking about 200 plus gigafactories churning out hundreds of millions or billions of, of batteries, battery cells, it does put a an increased, I guess, layer of um, urgency around safety. And so that's always been one of the challenges, I think, with battery recycling. It's not just how do we do it. The technologies around pyrometallurgy and hydrometallurgy are well known. But how do you recycle different cell formats? How do you recycle different chemistries? How do you recycle batteries that are in different states 
rates of charge. I mean, it's real issues that the recycling industry, both the existing recycling industry and up and coming recyclers are, you know, I don't want to say struggling with right now, but they're thinking through it very, very carefully. I've been uh, seeing some articles online about how GM is having problems with the Chevy Bolt to where a percentage of the batteries are just exploding, combusting. You know, what safety uh, issues might there need to be implemented with some of these electrical vehicles that seem to self-combust? Is it just a GM issue or is it a broader issue? Well, I think, you know, not to pick on GM, I think in that instance, it was probably a GM issue. You could also point the finger if you wanted to at their battery provider which I believe is LG Chem for the Bolt. I could be wrong on that. I have to verify. But, you know, this is one of the challenges with the electrification of the automobile industry is that it's not really vertically integrated. And so you're sourcing your raw materials from one part of the world. You're perhaps refining it in another part of the world. You're producing cathode and anode, typically in Asia. Battery cells can be produced in Asia. And then, you know, they end up all over the world, whether or not it's in Europe or here in the United States or, or anywhere else for that matter. So you're going to need to see a much more regionalized and perhaps a shorter, tighter supply chain. Part of that comes from the U.S.-China trade war. Part of that comes from COVID. But I think also part of it comes from this realization that shipping hazardous materials back and forth across the ocean and then trying to figure out what to do with them at the end of life is just not efficient, not not a realistic business model going forward. So, you know, you're likely to see, I think, more challenges uh, with respect to batteries and recalls and things like that. And to be fair, you know, the traditional automobile industry, the internal combustion engine industry, if that's the right way to think about it, they recall cars all the time. Okay, so this idea that oh wow, maybe battery electric vehicles aren't a great idea because of one recall here or one recall there. Let's Let's just sit tight for a minute and see how this rollout really um, comes about. So still a lot of reasons to be optimistic, but it is a it's a new supply chain and a new way of business for a lot of people. So for the investors hearing this, when they're looking at potentially miners that supply the battery supply chain, what would be some key takeaways then? Would they want to keep their eye on, you know, because when Tesla did a deal with Piedmont Lithium, I think the share price went up like five times or something like that. Well, what takeaways could you point out with us for those that invest in mining stocks? Yeah, look, I think, again, coming back to just the complexity of the supply chain, um, as a mining company, you have to have a partner, okay? And you have to have a partner that is well-funded. So, you know, a much larger balance sheet and also has a very clear vision on how they want to integrate and interact into the EV supply chain. Some of the most successful, um, and let, let's ignore the existing miners for a second, the Albemarle's and the SQM's and the Livens, because they're kind of in a different league. You know, look at well, you know, look at Piedmont, for example, or look at Lithium Americas, or look at Standard Lithium. I mean, those are three examples of companies. Tesla, um, of course, has done the deal with Piedmont. I think it's 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 predicated on Piedmont getting into production by a certain period in time. But again, when you have a partner that has a larger balance sheet and ideally a lot of technical talent as well, you can then turn around and go to the capital markets and say, hey, look, we have a customer. This customer has knowledge and, of course, you know, an, an end user base as well. And so it's, it's a much easier pathway to raising the capital at ideally a, a manageable cost of capital um, 
relative to going it alone. I just don't think that any mining companies, regardless of lithium or cobalt or what have you, will be able to go it alone. The other interesting thing that I would just say um, uh, that has happened since the last time we spoke is that I see the OEMs, the automotive players in particular, getting a lot more aggressive in terms of securing supply. Uh, probably the most obvious example of that is General Motors and the deal that they have struck, which quite frankly, we don't know a lot about, but the deal that they have struck with controlled thermal resources in, um, I believe it's in California is where that asset is located. Again, not in production. They've got a long ways to go, haven't raised the capital. But you know, the fact that automotive players beyond Tesla and beyond the Chinese, I think, have now woken up to the reality of electric vehicles and what it's going to take to build out the supply chains. That's something that's really, really important. So you know, who, who are ideal targets, okay, quite frankly, uh, for automotive players? And again, I'm just sort of going across the spectrum, lithium, cobalt, copper, what have you. Again, you're going to need a very large deposit that is scalable and ideally in a real, real realistic or or um, a safe, for lack of a better better phrase, geopolitical jurisdiction. So North America comes to mind. Uh, the European Union, the continent, comes to mind as well, and I think you're starting to see a lot of interest over there. Um, you know, look, management capability. We talk about this all the time. I mean, that is that is crucial as well. I would argue that a junior mining company that has a the optimal mixture, if you will, of financial talent, in other words, finding non-dilutive sources of capital, and also the technical talent, um, is going to be really attractive to some of these larger OEMs that, quite frankly, you know, General Motors is, is a multi-billion dollar company. They're running a business all over the world, and they're trying to figure out, you know, how do we compete with Tesla? How do we compete with the Chinese? And so it's really a question of, I think, combining and leveraging technical and financial talent from the junior mining perspective. And there are, there are probably opportunities out there across the spectrum for sure. Chris, one more question before you go. Manganese, are you bullish on that metal for the battery metal EV movement? Yeah, you know, I, to be honest, I haven't done quite as much work as, as um, some of these others. And I think it's just because manganese, sort of like graphite, you know, it just tends to get lost in the, in the shouting match over lithium and over copper. When you look at... Um, some of, I don't want to call them next generation chemistries, but you look at what a company like Volkswagen is talking about with their manganese rich or manganese heavy lithium ion batteries. And then you look at the market structure of manganese, where most of it comes from China and other, let's just say, more challenging geopolitical jurisdictions like South Africa. Um, you really, I think, want to be paying much closer attention to manganese going forward. Excellent. Okay. Your website is discoveryinvesting.com. Just tell listeners what they'll find there. Uh, a lot of what we chatted about today, recent media appearances. Um, I've actually done some academic writing over the last couple of years. And so there are some deeper dives on financing challenges. And again, this idea, this paradox of green growth, there's a fair amount there as well. Excellent. Well, Chris, thanks for this overview and we'll be keeping in contact with you. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Mining Stock Education. Please subscribe and share this show with like-minded investors. Connect with us at miningstockeducation.com and sign up for our email list to stay in touch. Much success to you as you learn about, invest in, and profit from mining stocks. 
The mining business is one that generates gigantic wealth. You know, a good drill hole that converts might cost fifty or a hundred thousand dollars, and it might discover something worth a couple billion. There is no sector that I know of that has offered up as many predictable circumstances uh, where there was the possibility—certainly not the certainty—but the possibility of ten-for-one returns, as there is in small-cap and micro-cap mining stocks. Concomitant with that, if you don't do the work, or even if you do do the work and don't discipline yourself on the sell side, there are very few places in the world where you can lose as much money as quickly as in mining stocks too. I just started to study up on mining stocks, and I just became fascinated because this is such a tiny sector, and it's so volatile that either you could really you could do really really well, or you could pretty much get blown out of the water really quickly. The mining sector is a very risky sector. It can take your money very, very quickly. Don't fall in love with stocks. Don't be overly confident, and just do your work as best you can. Do your very best, but don't fall in love and don't get too overly confident because、um, that's a recipe for disaster. I have met, you know, professional retail investors that have made a tremendous amount of money on the junior mining space. Some of them aren't accredited, and they just they spend their days researching, talking to people, being on the phone, being pouring through financial documents. But it requires commitment. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be considered personal, legal, or investment advice, or a recommendation to buy or sell securities or any other product. We make every effort to be accurate, but the information presented is not to be considered infallible. It may contain errors, and we offer no inferred or explicit warranty. If personal advice is needed, consult a qualified legal, tax, or investment professional. Do not base any investment decision on the information contained on MiningStockEducation.com, our podcasts, or videos. Make sure you always conduct your own thorough due diligence before investing. Realize that we may hold equity positions in or be compensated by some of the companies we feature, and therefore are biased and hold an obvious conflict of interest. For our full disclaimer, please visit our website.